Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 32, season two of the Shopstool podcast. Now, this show is going to be slightly different to our normal lineup. Unfortunately, while recording the last show, we had a bit of technical trouble. So all we were able to salvage was the group Skype call. So you're going to notice the audio quality isn't as up there as it normally is, but the content of this show was incredible. So we still really want to share it with you. It's a very exciting show, and um, we wanted to get it out no matter what. The person we're talking to is a guy by the name of Damien Wright. He's an award-winning craftsman out of Melbourne. He specializes in eucalypts, and the story of how he gets this particular type of wood is amazing. We'll get to that later in the show. So we're about to get into it now. We've done all of our intros. Uh, We started recording from just after that, where Damien's about to explain um, one of his pieces and what he does. So here we go. Yeah, some, some of the pieces that um, you've put out on Instagram, the one of the later ones, it's a, a picture of it. It's, a, it's a, a table with these circles and with discs building it up. Such an incredible design. Um, where, where did that, that come from? Um, uh, that design was, um, uh, it sort of came out of nowhere, actually. I was asked, was commissioned designer to make a round table, design and make a round table for a um, gallery in Sydney, a gallery that represents me in Sydney, the, um, the uh, gallery Sally Dan Cuthbert. And Sally wanted a round table. She thought that it would um, really... Uh, be an interesting thing to have and um like most of my design work i i generally leave it to uh, a very late stage and um <laughs> as i've done ever since i was a kid and a student i put myself under that kind of pressure and um i literally was searching around for an idea and um and i just sort of uh happened upon that in my dream really i just kind that's of thought awesome. oh that's a good idea and i'll um i'll try that and i um i you know i, I was sort of had a deadline to produce an idea for her and um i actually had already presented her with one idea of a round table that i've done before and um she was very you know she didn't want that one but she was also really good in kind of prompting me to think a little bit looser you know think a little bit more um uh, you know, in, in more sculpturally, sculpturally in terms of a round table. And um, so I was kind of trying to find a, a design that was both functional because I, I don't know if you've made round tables, but they're actually really difficult. It's really difficult to get a round table that's both balanced and stable and light and um, yeah. uh, without kind of having, you know, sort of too much underneath. And um, and also, so, yeah, I... I sort of gave myself a day to come up with an idea and um, sketched it once, you know, did some drawings of that same stack table with squares, you know, stacked on squares and then made them round and and um, then sort of did a fairly rough drawing and, um, and was very happy with it. And mm. like most of my design work, um, the, the, the design is also in the making, and actually, this is a really important point that, that I don't separate off those two things. It's not a, a a binary. I think that that's actually one of the real problems with our creative world and, and many of the ways we think within our 
sort of Western um, uh, culture about separating the kind of manual um, realization of things in general and the intellectual creative um, processes. I don't mm. think that I don't actually think that is is how my brain works, or it's certainly not how my body works. And I need to have them pushed together. And so I actually allow myself a lot of room to um, uh, design it while I'm making it. So, mm. you know, that was a sketch. And I, I did actually publish the pictures of the sketch. And there's one more disc in the actual thing that I made right. in the sketch because the sketch didn't, you know, it wasn't resolved. But I don't punish myself about that. My process is I draw it, then I make a model or a marquette and um, to scale, and I work out most of those things in that process. But then I sort of forge ahead, and um, and I really like that part of the part of being a maker where you are actually problem solving, where it's not it's mm. not well documented. I want I don't want it to be well documented, and um, that is both uh, essential to the madness that I that I have, <laughs> and. And utterly infuriating in that I never can kind of <laughs> nail any of that stuff down for a sort of commercial, um, you know, I'm always re redoing it. You know, I'm all, it's it's a, one of the terrible parts of things that I do um, is not document p- things properly. But I seem to do it well enough to be able to keep doing it. So it's sort of self-fulfilling. <laughs> That's really interesting to me because I'm also essentially almost 100% commission-based work but i i really um am envious of what you just described and that i guess you've done or put yourself in a position where you're working with clients who allow you this freedom they don't necessarily want to see this black and white sketch of this is exactly what you're going to get and i've found myself being in that position where um for a multitude of reasons, I end up having to do a lot of design work, give clients several different pictures of what they're going to get to scale. This is exactly what you're going to get, so mainly so you can't complain about it. Because um, <laughs> if I change something, because often I will find like, oh, you know, I could, I should change this aspect. Like you say, when you're actually making the thing, you feel like, I, I'm just going to change this because I feel like it needs to be changed. But if I do that and then suddenly the person who's getting it doesn't like that change, then I just lost a whole bunch of my profit. So I think you've got yourself in a position, obviously, where your clients are free and happy for you to be an artist more so than just a commission-based kind of cabinet shop who's just supplying what someone already has in their head. Well, I think that um, you're right. I'm very lucky to have got to that um that position but that i think that um i think there's actually more room and there's more opportunity in that that type of practice than um we readily uh accept in that you know i think um i think that like part of that territory is territory that you have to take okay so to do that in terms of the the creative process and the business you have to be prepared to wedge that space in that relationship, that commercial relationship, whether it's with architects or whether it's with builders, and you you have to take it away from them. It's not given to mm. you. There's no room in our culture for a craftsman. Mm. There's none. It does it does not exist. Wood craftsman. There are for other pra- other other practices, other media, 
but we've sort of, um, and it's our own making. We mm. we made ourselves this sort of reductive, hyper skill based um, practice where you know we we invested in our own skill set to the exclusion of explaining ourselves to people who are outside of it. Yeah, and we're not in. We're not it. We're not. Uh, we're not a building industry. We're not artists. We're craftspeople. Mm. But to, and people will respond to that logic. But you have to um, go into that meeting with your client, and you have to own that. And that can't be with every client. There's plenty of clients where I just follow what they do, and it's a very long journey. Yeah. But it still is that commercial relationship. You have to be the expert. And you have to own all sorts of parts of it, the aesthetic and cultural and political. You have to be able to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And so you have to be all things to all people. Mm. And the payoff of it is that you're poor for a very long time. Yeah. You know, that's the payoff. Like yeah. you might get to do that and make things. So you better be really, really sustained by making really beautiful things because if you follow that version of it, it's, it's almost impossible to make the equivalent of a, you know, any kind of, you know, structured or salaried wage. You'll get a lot more out of your life in other ways. Yeah. But it's just not because you will invest that amount of time. It's your time. that If you're going to do it the way that you want to do it, you know, they're got, like there's not enough time in the day, in the year <laughs> to do it like that. So, yeah, it's, it is hard. And I think you have to be extremely egotistical to to do it you know like you really do have to decide that you're the person who understands this piece of furniture better than anyone else and once again that's not you know that i'm not advertising that for everyone and i'm not always really um happy with that version of myself either but yeah. That, that person has allowed me to stand in those situations and say, well, no, this is how it's going to be and this is how it should be and this is how you want it. And, mm. you know, if you, um, if, you, if you can do that, the space is there. There's a space in our culture for a, a skill-based practitioner with a fantastic material knowledge and a, and a kind of, um, you know, design and, you know, there is space for that but... It's no one's going to offer it. You know? No, no, it's just it's, not going to. So many things you say are, there, are resonating there, Damien. Yeah, um, I know. Like okay. The way the way you're talking about owning it for yourself and creating mm. that niche for yourself, um, I think it is a cultural thing, especially in Australia, and it's probably from uh, I don't know Irish and Scottish roots, is to not shout about your own work. Let mm -hmm. other people do it for you. You know, you're supposed to be a modest craftsman. Let the work speak for itself and, you know, hopefully that'll lead to another commission. And I think you're dead right. I think with commission-based um, woodcraft, you, you can't do that now. You really, you have to be a one-man marketing machine mm. to really promote your own work. Let it speak for itself. It's obviously got to be a good enough level that you're not just all talk and, and no end product. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Um, well, I think, Brian, the... the um you know, the technologies have changed and with, the with um, you know, social media and uh, Instagram, for instance, as a sort of advertising platform, um, I think it's very uh, – there's more opportunity to promote and to, to, to pitch yourself than there ever has been before. Um, and I think that's both an a enormous um, burst and – but it's also a, a – a very difficult burden for 
um, particularly emerging craftspeople, to have to deal with um, because they can present work way far, you know, at a level that is um, not resolved, that their practice isn't in that point, um, they don't have that client base. And so it's a real, you can live a really uh, abstracted um, existence. And whilst that can be, um, you know, that's fine if you to, if you can kind of push yourself forward and create those jobs and get those, you know, projects and all that, all, you know, and develop from that. I don't think it's a negative thing. But I think self-promotion is also really punishing. And I think at a kind of um, emotional and psychological level, certainly for me, the isolation of um, not engaging in the world is actually why I did do this. You know, yeah. that's why I do it. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to have to talk to people. I don't have to tell people this. I, you know, like I. I want, as again, to use the ego again. I want people to see the work and to be so, you know, interested and excited that they seek me out. You know, and I have found that making yourself hard to find is not a bad thing. So I, I sort of agree with you, Brian. But I, on the other hand, you know, if you there is a, there is a clientele who want somebody who is in a way not in their face, you know, yep. and is not competing for every job, who has got this kind of illusion, and mm. it is all illusion. It's and that all that stuff leans much more on a fine art market than it does on you know a, a tradesman or a, a kind of volume. So and you know I've thought about this stuff a lot. I've been doing it for long enough, and you know it's really hard to it's really hard to um to it's really hard to make enough work at the level that you want to make it. So you've got to find people who will invest in that work, and mm. how you do that is really you know. Really, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how you do it. Sell, sell that secret secret in your memoirs, Damon. Don't, yeah. don't reveal it too <laughs> <All right>. soon. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, you need a bit of luck. But, you, you know, and you need to be able to ride with, with some really – you've got to take on really big things and you've got to survive them. And, you know, I've had situations where, um, you know, I've, been, I've worked really, really hard, produced fantastic work and gotten nothing out of it, you know, mm. but – to watch the way that people respond to me now, you know, when I talk to clients and and the way that they look at a guy in his um, er, very early 50s and, um, you know, who has that track record, there's a different – I get treated a different way, which is very just, interesting. It's really just, interesting. To, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to mention that the way you're talking, um, if I was a client and I had you talking the way you're talking now to me and – myself talking with maybe if i'm lucky i don't know i've been doing this full time for 10 years um i would choose you as my maker because you're <laughs> you've got this um self-confident and i can tell by the way you're speaking that you know what the hell you're talking about and i know what i'm talking about to a degree but I, you've just, I can tell that you've got so much more experience than anyone else we've ever talked to. Um, and when, did that, when did that sort of happen for you, Damien, where you had that moment of, you were talking about producing good work. So, you, you know, you've got the good work to back it up. Whereabouts in your career did you hit that point? Um, I think, I think that, um, uh, it, you know, I think, I think fairly 
early on. So I started doing this in the um, mid nineties. You know, early. Well, you know, I, would, I work. I sort of started to, to do it while I was at university, and then um, and then kept doing it. But I didn't really. Um, uh, I can tell one one anecdote, right? I've got this one moment where I reckon I found something that really stayed with me, which was um, I was, I was in my um, in the night. It was in the nineties, um, and I would have been in my twenties, and. Um, I was very interested in, as we've discussed, or we lent on, you know, eucalypts, and very much very interested in the way that, um, you know, in the kind of folding wrapping idea of furniture. You know, a lot of my early stuff had this sort of folding grain and, um, you know, mitres with the grain wrapping around, which I still do. And I was really interested in how to do that um, in uh, solid timber and eucalypts, in particular iron bark, and. Um, mm. So I started to think about how to 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 make that joint, and um and I you know the kind of logic of at the day of the day was you can't do that stuff in eucalypts because you can't glue it, and you know it doesn't respond to this and doesn't respond to that anyway. So I went and taught myself how to make blind mitered dovetails, okay. and um I can remember making this um prototype, which is actually next to me on the floor, um of a C section of a a um. A, a little stool, which is just a blind mitered dovetail, two blind mitered dovetails, a top plate and a bottom top plate, if you imagine. It's probably sits 300 off the floor yeah. and it's got two cantilevered arms sticking out like a long way, like 700, like way out there. And um, I remember getting one of our little kids when they were just little to stand on it, then getting the bigger one, then getting my wife, <laughs> then standing on myself, and, and it worked. You know, fuck me, it worked. You, you, can, you can make a... A, um, a blind mitered dovetail out of um, eucalypt that will hold that tension, and it's it's incredibly strong. It's, and I can remember that was a real moment for me. And I thought, oh, actually, I can do this. You know, yeah. I I can picture that how that works internally. I can imagine how the the joint works. And I did some research, you know, and looked up how you make it, then figured out a way of doing it. And that sort of gave me a. I do think that gave me a degree of confidence. Um, with to dream a bit more abstractly in terms of how to make things, but I I reckon I actually go back a bit further than that in terms of um, where it was and where the confidence comes from, and I think that I was gifted that from my parents and um, and my family, you know, and um, they I was always explained in our household as being um, linked to. The other men in my, particularly my father's side, who were makers, they were all engineers and shipwrights, and um, they, uh, that was a sort of, from a very young age, that I located myself there as a very vocal, very political, very cerebral, you know, family, and I always found solace, you know, in the shed and making stuff, and I made and made and made. And um, and I was gently rewarded for that always, and um, and so I think I was I I decided that I was going to be this guy a very long time ago, mm. and how I managed to convince other people to pay me money to do stuff, you know, I still don't know, you know, <laughs> I think fuck me, yeah, that happened, you know, especially when you go and see your old work, work. I hope you can publish the swearing or not, but I'll stop. <laughs> Um, yeah, especially when I go and look at old work sometimes and I 
I look at things that I've done and I don't even know that guy. You know, yeah. I, I look at it and go, jeez, you know, that's good. Gee, I wish I did that. You know, like, but, <laughs> so, you know, somehow I've managed to, to construct it, you know, and, and it has been, yeah, it's a mystery to me. I must say it does. That feels really good. It's happened to me once where I've gone back and seen a piece of furniture that I made. I forgot that I made essentially kind of, you know, just passes you by and I saw it, I recognized it and I had a look at it and I was kind of impressed that I made it the way I did. I was like, Oh, wow, that's good. I'm glad I took the time to do it the right way, mm. even though I probably thought about it then, but maybe I would have cut a corner now, but you know, I did it the right way and I'm happy. I'm glad that I did that. Um, it's a good feeling when you, you see something that is done the way it should be. <laughs> And you took the time to do it. Well, I can remember seeing a chair when I was at uni studying. I did a Bachelor of Arts and I saw a chair and it was a Victorian Woodworks Association exhibition in at the old exhibition buildings. And I um, I would have been in my late teens or early 20s. I was at university and, um, and I saw this chair and I looked at the the control in it, you know, the, 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 the hand to – I had a hand control, and I thought I knew that I wanted to do that. And I still couldn't make that chair. I think it might have been a – I'm not sure, but it might have been a Tony um, Kellaway chair, um, but I can't locate who it was. But it was of that kind of nature. It was beautiful and resolved and curved and sumptuous, and um, I still couldn't do that. And uh, I, But I do – I did know from a very young age that I wanted to get control of my my mind and my body and somehow bring them together. And um, and that's kind of that's the life journey for me is to sort of find that balance between um, you know dreaming up things and problem solving and making mistakes and you know mm. trying not to make those mistakes and trying to stay ahead of um, the the try and stay ahead of the the hammer, you know, yeah. as a result as a resolution tool, and um, try and stay ahead of that without drowning the thing in process and without drowning it in um, drawings or or um, you know jigs or repeatability. Like um, you know, I want I want to be all over it, but I don't want to be smashing you know tenons together with a, a mallet <laughs> to make them fit. <laughs> But I also don't want to, um, and sorry, Carbotech or whoever they are, I don't want a, pant <laughs> a panto router or a, you know, I don't want one. Like, I, don't, yeah. I want to figure that shit out and I want to make it, and um, but I don't want to end up having to bash the crap out of it to fit together or cut myself. You know, I don't want that, you know, all that self-loathing that comes from failure and injury. I, I reckon I've, I, this is what I do to try and test that, constantly test that. You said uh, earlier, you mentioned earlier about uh, constantly wanting to push yourself forward and take on new things. What is that, uh, what form does that take for you at the moment? What's a new thing that you, you could be slightly apprehensive about? Um, scale? Uh, you know, there's a sort of point at which it, that I'm at at the moment where what I've done on a, um, a, a a, uh, a sort of one-off commission-based practice 
scale has kind of flirted with, um, you know, domestic uh, into the commercial. And I've done a couple of really successful um, larger size, larger larger commissions. Um, and there's a kind of a creative process there where you're collaborating and um, you're collaborating with designers and you're you're sort of intersecting that um, that world, but you are also really vulnerable because you're not a massive joinery with you know a huge insurance policy and staff to go yeah. through the contract and you know they, they, like you can you actually take this type of model where people see the outcome you know the, the client sees the outcome the designer sees the outcome but can they have you you know can you kind of wedge enough space contractually in that mm. world to get what they want and deliver what you want without becoming a massive joiner and i you know i've I've got nothing but respect for massive joineries, but I can't do that. Mm. You know, I can't. So that's that's a challenge I'm in at the moment. I'm actually in that position where I've been, you know, um, I've got a job. It's a really, really good job for really interesting people, all these people I value, and I, I will make that happen. But, you know, it, there's a lot of energy to go into the sort of structure of that, like how to be that guy that, you were talking about Robin, like how to be that, how do I be that guy when you're building, when you're one of, you know, all these other people in a massive commercial building thing, you got to walk in with your beret on and, you know, <laughs> be the wood guy, you know, yeah. and if they let you be that guy, you'll, you'll deliver like they've got no idea, you know, like there's a huge vacuum there because the kind of the product that people are used to is, you know, you and I, we all know it. It's, pretty standard yeah. whereas you can yeah. produce something else well but there's a lot of moving of bollards to you know give you the space to do that and that is really challenging let alone doing the actual work yeah. you know actually physically doing the work and doing the design work but i'm around really good people and really good designers and um designers who want to collaborate and who want to see the the sort of um you know, the intersection of those, of the practices rather than th these things as polar opposites and um, that you're, that see you as a contributor and a collaborator in a design process. So that, you know, that's the big thing is winning that argument, you know, win that mm. argument that that the best way to do this is to sort of um, compress that design as a, you know, unlike your, your training as an architect, Brian, you know, to kind of in a way invert that and, you know, compress all those things back together rather than have them separate out, separate out. But you got it. There's a lot of emotional energy to keep people on board with that idea. And if you fuck it up, mm. you know, you're gone. So you've got to not stuff it up. <laughs> like to me, Damien, like I've obviously known your work for a long time and I've known you for a good few years now and been fortunate enough to exhibit my work alongside yours. But I remember the first time I saw a piece of your work in person was at the um, Australian Furniture Design Awards, where you had the uh, Bala Bala Galili. Yep. Is that, is that how you said? Yeah. And it just struck me then. Well, it would probably been with me for a while, but hearing you talk about it was the way you can merge a beautiful aesthetic and three D form and a piece of furniture, but you embody it with uh, the poetic side of things as well, and it's. It's not just a piece of furniture, but it's something that tells a story. 
Um, could you talk us through, because some of the listeners might not have seen it, but they should definitely Google some images of it. And um, could you talk us through how that commission happened and who it was with collaboratively? And Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. But can I get a beer? I'm just going to grab a beer. Yeah, grab a beer. Hey, grab a beer. Yeah. We'll talk amongst ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny, um, listening to what Damien was saying earlier about not going the jig route. Because, Joey, we've talked about this in the past. I think we just touched on it very briefly, where you, you're making a piece as a, as a solo woodworker. There is only that piece. There is no other piece. So the idea of making it perfect and repeatable, it almost sh that shouldn't be the point. You want to have an angle that isn't 90 degrees on one corner of the table because that's, that's your piece. That's your quote-unquote mistake. And only that piece has that. So it's a, it's a cool way to look at it. Yeah. I think whenever anyone's asked me to make more than one of anything, I, I've always just kind of shied away because I don't want to have to... Uh, the perfect example is recently, a while ago, I finished a set of 12 chairs that I was going on about with you guys. And I talked about that all the jigs I had made to make those 12 chairs have been destroyed in the making of the chairs. Yeah. <laughs> and... But that's fine because I never want to make those 12 chairs again. If if someone wants me to make 12 chairs even similar to those, I'll make make it all from scratch. I'll make new templates and they'll all be slightly different. I don't want to be able to just grab the jig off the wall and throw 12 chairs together in three days. Um, it sounds so nonsensical when you say it out loud. Like anybody <laughs> that doesn't make stuff would be listening to this going, what? It's bonkers. Yeah. But I know exactly where you're coming from. Hmm. It's a strange, uh, it's strange, I don't even know why, I can't even, I don't think I've sat and thought about why that is, because I know from my business point of view, it's like, why the hell don't I just spend a week making these jigs up, and then I can just sell these chairs to whoever wants them, but then yeah. I just become a manufacturer, and I don't want to do That's that, it. I want to, I really want to stay on that, like uh, Damien was saying, there's this, you're, you're walking this tightrope of design, artists, woodworker businessman and um on any given day you're all of those things from hour to hour mm. all right let's hear this commission story i'm yeah, fascinated yeah. but um i do like talking about chairs probably yeah Cha <laughs> chairs are a, a yeah you don't want to make you don't want to make them again because they're mad it's mad it's <laughs> yeah. just, just just madness there's nothing that we do that lends itself more to industrialization than a chair and there's nothing that we do that suffers more from re repetition and industrialization like you just mm. the difference between a handmade chair and a and a, a chair that's one of millions or thousands is just you know yeah. it's the difference in this in between a live body and a dead body you know <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just different and if you can't see that then don't do it you know yeah and yeah, but it's I like that. I like but that. you certainly can't make any money out of it. No. <laughs> it's, just, it's impossible. So it's like a yeah. Cheers, cheers is I think is just purely. I'll, I would have only said this after listening to you, Damon. It's all ego. All ego. Cheers is just ego, and just to say you've done it. Yeah. There's no money in the bank. I've made hundreds of chairs, and I've never finished one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're never finished. You never, yeah. ever. Yeah. Like you can always look at it and go, oh, okay. Shh, 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 yeah. You know, it just never. Anyway, 
But I do, I always say when I finish chairs, I always say to my wife, I'm never doing that again. And she yeah. always says, yes, <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Anyway, so, so Balaga Lily is, um, translates in Yungo Mata. So Yungo are a people of northeast Arnhem, Arnhem Land and um, uh, Yungo Mata is their language and the, massive oversimplification and um, please forgive me for, for, um, for the reductive, um, uh, you know, explanation and that's not because I've got a more complex explanation, that's because I'm, you know, that's, I'm struggling to keep up with such a complex um, thing, culture and people. But Balagalili means two ways learning, and it's a concept that I was introduced to when I was lucky enough to um, live in a on a, um, a Aboriginal community in northeast Arnhem Land um, called Gunyangara. Um, I was invited up there to set up a workshop, and um, we moved the whole family up there, and we lived up there. And um, I did set up this workshop, and um, uh, we how, how long were you there for, Damien? Sorry. I, I was there for about eight months. The whole family there for months. six months. Um, and then well, we're still going backwards and forwards, and I haven't been up there for a while. But um, Claire goes up a lot more than me. Um, and the the concept was presented to me very early on um, by the the old men and the people, that are, the young men that I was working with, that the whole way that this process would work would be a, a, um, a, a an exchange. It was not I wasn't I wasn't the teacher, and nor was I the student. That the two things were again compressed. You don't separate these things out, and that I was um, I was the last thing I was there to do was to go up there and teach these fellas, you know, just how it is. You know, this is all. You know, I know all this, and you don't. And um, that I was to go in with my eyes and my heart wide open, and I certainly did. And um, Balagar Lily was a way of expressing the the cross cultural, um, you know, permeable um, frontier of white and black culture. We're Yungle and Balanda. We're Balanda. And um, and so when we came back to Melbourne, heartbroken because you know eventually you have to leave a situation like that, and um, we were we were sort of extremely um, devastated that but I had a very special relationship with one of the men in particular a fellow called Bunala Yunapingu and Bunala was the um, Yungle mentor in the workshop and he um, and I although we had our trials and tribulations um, he and I got along very well and he's a he's a magnificent human being complicated um, you know like it can be difficult but he's beautiful and he's powerful and he's he's um, soulful and one of the most interesting men I've ever met in my life. And the moment I met him, I was just sort of fascinated by this guy. And so I started to bring Bunala down to work with me down here um, and just to come down for two or three weeks stints at a time, a couple of times a year. He stay with us because we are family. It's a kinship. There's a kinship relationship there. And... Um, we would we'd work together, and he'd largely work for me, or just do whatever we're doing. And it was a um, was nearly ten years, maybe eight years, down that path where we started to sort of talk about um, not having a kind of relationship where I was the boss and he was a worker with me, but that would have a collaborative relationship. So we started this conversation about collaboration a long time before it actually happened. 
And when when we finally um, sort of started to um, you know get this project up and running, was actually specifically for an exhibition curated by Alkerston Gallery, um, which was called uh, it was about the extractive frontier, and um, it was about artists' response to. Australia is a, a place of mining, basically, and that whole kind of cultural imperative we have of dig it up, you know. And Gove, where the, where Bunnell is from, northeast Arnhem Land, has a huge bauxite um, mine there, and that's um, that's the sort of you know the big white industry. And so we were in a very good place to talk about the extractive frontier. And so what happened was Bunnell came down and he stayed with us for about a month. And we talked and tried to figure out what we would do. And out of that came a kind of a, a very a very difficult um, realisation about cross-cultural collaboration that is is really about the power of, um, of a collective idea and a movement, but separate the separate body that the that the um, you know the white guy the Ballander guy and the young man uh, in a way that they can be bound together through all sorts of things even kinship but in another way they are all always separate that you're not you know I don't want to be and can't be a young man I'm not going to be and I don't want to turn Bunnell into a industrial you know like a industrial worker like us you know mm. that's he's got a traditional life he's got a cultural life he's got a whole life that's a that's outside of that and so we sort of designed this piece around two forms one was the form of him um, throwing a spear which is a kind of act of um, power and grace and athleticism and you know it's sort of loaded you know it's full of sort of anticipation and that that piece is called Wunukari, which means the other side. So it's a sort of act of um, where, you know, looking, which was also a joke that we had up there but about um, all sorts of things anyway. And he, so that's a beautiful sort of loaded piece. And then the other piece is a, 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 a tower, which is a, a um, it's actually in ancient red gum. So it's made out of a 10,000-year-old red gum with, with all the, those references to the age of this continent and obviously the people of this continent. But that piece is um, rectilinear, Roman, divisible. Um, it's entirely um, Western, you know, mm. and it's sort of so it's a way of kind of the piece is about the tension between um, two men um, moving through life together with a, con a, con a, a connection and a purpose but an acknowledgement that um, you yeah you may always occupy you can you can love each other within the same space without destroying each other. Yeah, that's, that's wow, awesome. that's amazing. <laughs> I can yeah. listen to that all night. I'm instantly around a campfire with a beer, listening to that. I know. You would be well, the best person to sit around a campfire with, Damien. <laughs> with Bunala. Bunala's better. Bunala's a Yunapingu, and he's he's a, a star. He's like, um, and he's a great man to be around a campfire with. And he, um, yeah, he can regale you with story after story after story. It's a very performative culture. It's a fascinating mm. culture. And any chance that you get to get involved in it, I would, well, I think it's an essential thing. It's a gift that. That um that this country is yet to fully realise and uh, it's it's Aboriginal heritage. I mean we flirt with it, we talk about it, you know. It's but it's actually it's there and it's 
you know, my argument about or my feeling about that is that as as bad as our first 200 years have been in terms of a, a colonial project and the savagery that we that we wrought on Indigenous people, that, you know, that those Indigenous people have prevailed and that our culture in the next 200 years will reflect that and we, wa we won't be some sort of offcut of, of British colonial overreach that, you know, is forever trying to prove it, that it actually isn't where it is, that, you know, we, we, we actually wish we're closer or we're somewhere else. We'll actually own up to the fact that we're here and it's in the Southern Hemisphere and it's an Aboriginal place and that that will be our defining logic, that we won't continue to compartmentalise that and push it to mm. the side and say, this is the problem, this is something we have to deal with, you know. But to do that, we have to, uh, you know, we have to embrace justice, and we and we haven't. We don't, you know, we just we just won't talk about it as a country. We won't, we won't acknowledge the, um, we'll barely acknowledge the, um, you know, disgraceful um, history, and we're nowhere near having a conversation about justice or reconciliation without basically um, getting squeamish and, you know, deciding that it's all too difficult and, mm. you know, and we'll always be in this kind of half-hearted myopia. We'll, we just will be stuck here because fucking Europe's not going to look after us. America's not going to look after us. Mm. Like, we're too far. We can't be those people anymore. And maybe this COVID, you know, maybe the fact that we're going back to um, isolationism, maybe that'll turn us back in on ourselves and we'll actually go, well, actually, this is, a, this is the most fascinating and, you know, engrossing place to be and we can actually build something rather than go, well, I've got two, two, two pennies. The first thing I'm going to do is get the hell out of here and get myself to somewhere where there's real life. You know, Milan, you know, you know there's, there's furniture in Milan. You hear that? There's furniture. There's furniture. Those guys know about furniture. Those guys in Milan. You know, maybe we'll go, well, actually, you know what? There's furniture here. There's been people working with wood in this country for, what, you know, 65, 80,000 years? But, no, they wouldn't know any of those blokes, would they? They wouldn't have a clue. They wouldn't know anything. You know, I think I'll go and ask someone in Milan. <laughs> does it does it upset you? Does it upset you, Damien, that more Australian makers um, don't use solely Australian timbers? No, no, it doesn't. Nah. It doesn't upset me. It um, it fascinates me. In fact, it fascinates me that we um, uh, no. Doesn't upset me. I, I think it's funny. I think it's it funny. Confuses, that we, it confuses the hell out of me. Yeah, it is confusing. Now we, we've chased something that we can't possibly have. You know, that's like, like, why, why would you? I don't know. Why would you? Like, it's like wanting to be a teenager or something. You, you just can't. You know, you're not going to be young forever. Like, why would you be focused all that effort on stuff that comes from? You know, like I'm going to get my. Tesla to drive to the woodshop to buy my American oak, you know. <laughs> uh, the American oaks come out here on the ship with the burning, you know, dirty oil. To get, like, yeah, like there's trees around us and wouldn't you use those and save your money? And, uh, yeah, I, it's not so much I don't get it, you know. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the aesthetic fascination with the north 
I was very much, and this is my parents. Were you know, my parents were you know nationalists and they socialists, and they totally sort of drummed into us that this is where you're at. You know, this is the place. And you know, we had this. We had a what it would seem normal at the time, but it was a very adventurous childhood. And um, and my parents were utterly fascinated by this country and and the land and they're very much of it you know they and they brought us up to have that feeling too and so I've always thought that the materials of this country are a way of understanding it and exploring it and I'm much I can see why everyone wants to work with you know within the canon of you know northern hemisphere I can see it in one way but I just don't think it's the most interesting game Damien, um, well, and all of you guys, actually. So I'm over in New Zealand, and so can you clarify, because from my point of view, working with um, native timbers is kind of taboo because, like, it's illegal to mill it, fell it. You can't get it. If you can find someone with a log of it, it's worth more than American walnut anyway, and it's just... Glorified pine, and so why would you spend it on it? And um, and so is it actually uh, are Australian hardwoods like readily available in all in all these sorts of timbers that you guys are using? Is oh, it? Yeah. Oh, oh, do you want to go, Brian? I was just going to say it's a massively loaded political question at the moment. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Especially in Victoria, they're trying to propose banning the logging of native timbers by twenty twenty. Two, I think it is, or 2023, like not very far away. And it's all to do with not meeting certification standards. It's tied to businesses like the large, big hardware store that I'm not going to name that is in every single city in Australia. That one, the big green with the red writing that Karen had her shout in. Um, (laughs) It's to do with certification and lots of money. Like The reality is there are incredibly slow-growing native species of timber, which do need some kind of protection levels, and they do need to be managed in terms of the cost of the timber. It needs to reflect how long it takes to grow it. Mm. Whereas there's some incredibly fast-growing eucalypt species, and the idea is if you stop logging native species and you're just going to switch and import either cheap pine as building material or try to import, yeah, your hardwoods are going to be replaced with American oak and it. It's nonsensical, um, and all the experts that I've spoken to that run timber yards, are, they don't understand the logic behind it, and it's just being driven by big business. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there are like it's very different from New Zealand, as you say, because the majority of native species in New Zealand are uh, varieties of pine, which mm. look beautiful, but they don't hold up um, no. terribly well, and they're incredibly expensive, whereas... Yeah, you, uh, you go and you get some Victorian ash or Tasmanian oak or something, it'll do the job, and it's affordable. Mm. Um, but so, you compare that with some of the stuff that Damien works with, like yeah. I wouldn't know where to start on a piece of 10,000-year-old. So I was just going to say, I, I think I'd, I'd stare at it for that, about of that big two weeks from. before I was, I was uh, of the level where I'd touch it. <laughs> uh, Damien, is that, is that stuff like gold to, to find, to source, and to work with? Uh, yeah, it is, and um, okay. it. Uh, uh, I just, just to go back a step, 
I think that the thing that, um, you know, the, the, like we we in some ways um, uh, as furniture makers, woodworkers have been lumped into um, the industrial arguments about forestry, and um, that you know the kind of volume of of timber that you would use in a practice like mine, and I suspect all of yours, is never going to make an impact on, mm. you know, this kind of scale. And I think that um, that the the sort of large scale industrial arguments about forestry and and um, and timber and supply and um, and control are really really you know problematic and as Brian says, quite polluted. And um, that that the the uh, um, I choose to stay right out of it. I don't trust any of their certifications. I don't, you know, it means nothing to me. A ink stamp the, on some the be- the best thing you can do, Damien, which is what you do, is just don't make shit from it. That's mm-hmm. right. Don't make shit. Going to use a real piece of wood that used to be a living thing that's cut down and had a negative effect on the environment. Make something positive out of it. Make something that's going to last for 50, 100, 200 years. Don't make something that's going to end up in landfill in five years. Like, that's... Exactly. And, I, you know, I think we're really, really well-placed, you know, in our culture to to have that conversation and to be those people because, you know, woodworkers, you have to use an, 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 an organism. You know, you have to be about the sort of um, death in one form of that organism and the, you know, transference into something else. And... It's all about taking responsibility for that. Like, and there is a there's a legacy of that conversation, that argument in fine woodworking, and we we should be more invited into that conversation. We've got something to say, and the whole scale of the practices that you know and I know, and what people want to do with them, and their ambitions, and their whole you know, it's a really really tuned in, solid approach to life. That's more relevant than you know has been. For a long time, and we need to sort of, in a way, claim it. But that, you know, we like we're into it. Like we are into the the sustainable use of and high value of a material. That's what mm-hmm. woodworkers do. And yeah. we don't, you know, you're not going to argue with wood pulpers and um, that big green hardware shop. You're not going to, you know, not, they're not going to care. But mm-hmm. we actually have something, and it, it's a it's a really essential conversation. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Ancient red gum is um, is red gum that's been buried since the last ice age. So at the end of the last ice age, which ends about um, sort of 12, 13,000 years ago, mm. and you have enormous melts off the um, the snowy mountains here, um, and they which were glacial, and they flood the Murray Darling Basin, and they um, you know bowl over forests and trees fall in and get buried and silted over and so they're red gum trees that have um they're very specific conditions and it goes through a process where it oxidizes and turns jet black right through the whole the whole log and the log that i use the timber that i use comes out of a a quarry up on um the border up on the um, in aubrey wodonga and um, it was a quarry that, that mined road rock, like an aggregate, to put into asphalt right. under roads. And um, I got involved in it in the 90s. And um, sort of when the people who started the business, um, 
Jim Bowler, Joan Bowler, Joan and Anna, Joan Bowler and Anatel Farrell and Jim Bowler. Um, when they started it, I got involved with them. Then making, um, you know, doing research and you know experimenting and teaching myself how to work with it. And then over the years, their business interests um, waned, and I stayed with the Miller, who uh, um, is a fellow called Kelvin Barton, who's passed away. And um, for a long time, I would source all of my um, red gum from ancient red gum from Kelvin. And um, uh, when he passed away, I bought what he had. Awesome. So um, I went out on a limb and did that. And um, so now I'm kind of working through that material. Um, and it is both a, a, an incredible privilege to work with something that's so um, – rare and um, so meaningful and I do think it's a meaningful material I think it's got a really really strong spirit and I think it's something that engages us in a, a level of conversation or has the power to engage us in a level of conversation that we have done as settlers done everything we can to not have you know we've done as much as hard we worked as hard as we possibly can to not talk about this shit yeah. and but you make something out of something that's ten thousand years old and it's jet black and you're as white as a driven snow you're going to have to have you know someone's going to ask the question what yeah. where are you in all this what does it mean and um and i'm all answers and all ears <laughs> but um so i think it's for me it's been it really encapsulates the primary argument that I've had in my practice from the start, which is that um, making things out of timber is essentially still part of that colonial project. That the first thing you do as an invader is you get your axe and you start chopping down trees. It's the very first thing you do. And it's the technology that you bring, that brings you here. It's the, it's the craft and the materials that gets you and your guns and your steel and your, you know, and your military to another place to conquer another people. How you do that is you make a vessel out of wood that can float across space with no, you know, nothing. You know, mm. like that. Imagine the technology. Imagine what those guys could do. Yeah. You know, to make a machine out of wood that can flex and twist and navigate seas that you've got no, you know, it's like. Yeah. So that's your primary technology. Then once you land. You take that technology and you go, well, what am I going to do next? I'm just going to start cutting down trees, aren't I? Because that's what we do. We build and you start cutting down trees and that is your first moment. You get your axe and you hit an iron bark and you go, what the fuck have we got here? <laughs> <laughs> all that green, all that. You saw it sailing up the east coast of Australia. It says green, 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 you know, and then you get off and what have you got? You've got it's the hardest, <laughs> densest. It just does nothing, you know. So you figure out a technique to build a slab hut, and that's it. But you'd yeah. gone from building boats, yeah. you know, that could sh that could sail the world to building a slab hut that can't keep out the water. Yeah. <laughs> it can barely stand up because you can't – your technology doesn't work. Yeah, right. So we're still in that game. We're still doing it. We're still, as colonists, we're still figuring out how we can realise our – you know, how we see the world, what we want out of the world with the materials that are around us. And once you put ancient red gum in it with its jet black 
with its whole conversation about age and time and a habitated com- continent that's, you know, that's older than we can possibly get our head around with, it just explodes that conversation into a much more complicated and I hope, you know, much more, you know, futile, fertile, not futile, fertile (laughs) conversation about what design can do, about what craft can do, about what materials can do and about the the whole process of colonisation. And meanwhile, I just try to not cut my fingers off. I was going to say, on that very poetic note, um, we're going to have to call the show to an end, but I think that's a perfect place to leave it on that thought. I I really like that. That's the best end issue we've ever had. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. All right. So to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shop Store podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out today. Damien, thank you once again. Um, I think we might get you on the show again for a part two to hear some yeah. more of these stories because awesome. it's been amazing. Absolutely really, amazing. Really cool. Thank you very much for having me. And um, uh, it's a pleasure. And um, keep making. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The future is handmade. Uh, awesome. Love it. Love it. Every line is just a catchphrase for the show. Every line's incredible. A <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. All right, See everyone. You later. Okay. See, you. See you guys.